is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. What if Hollywood actors go on strike too? It could happen soon. We'll go in depth. You may know the band Maroon 5, but you probably have not heard the story of its original drummer. He's going to be with us to share how he struggled with addiction and depression and is now using that battle to help others avoid what he went through. But we start with the sag after strike authorization vote. J. Christopher Hamilton is a TV, radio, and film professor at Syracuse University. He's also a former entertainment attorney with experience dealing with these types of negotiations. Uh, thanks for being with us. How are you doing? Um, doing great. Thanks for having me. So, uh, of course, the strike authorization doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a strike, but that in mind, uh, the uh, Directors Guild agreement that happened over the weekend, does that seem to you to be a fair template for sag After, or are they fighting the two unions for very different things? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's very much the opposite. It, the last thing SAG-AFTRA wants is to be, is that to be a template. You know, the uh, DGA, you know, from 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 SAG-AFTRA's perspective, really didn't serve their interest in the way they um, closed their deal and, and, and settled on the terms that we all, that SAG-AFTRA, as well as WGA feels, feels were very, very important. So definitely won't be a template, even though the, two, the 2008 strike that the deal the DGA um, came to with the AMTP, AMTP was considered a pattern and a, and a template for the other unions. For WGA, in this case, it will not. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're suggesting the DGA sold the other unions out. Is that what you mean to say? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't use such strong terminology. No, but I but would. I would. <laughs> so. <laughs> I would just characterize it as this. The, the DGA has always been known to be more of the company man, right, with, with respect to the other unions, more on the side of management than on the side of talent. Um, so they were always very conservative and never really pushed the envelope too far. And they were able to leverage the the WGA strike uh, for for in, in their deal. So, again, let people read into it what they may. Is there also a strategy on the part of the producers to make a deal quickly with the uh, directors, uh, given, as you say, they, they are perceived as as the company man, per se, uh, to maybe make this quick deal with the directors, hold the writers off at arm's length and use that as a pressure point to apply against the actors? A hundred percent, although I do not feel it will be successful. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier in our last conversation, there's just too much at stake now. And the WGA and SAG-AFTRA have an immense amount of firepower at their disposal with both unions potentially going on strike. Obviously, SAG just voted to strike. They haven't struck yet. But but assuming they do, and I think they will, I don't think they'll miss on this opportunity to really, really hold uh, the studios, uh, hold their feet to the, to, to the coals. So let me try this in a somewhat different approach. If If someone were to... Uh, conclude that the Directors Guild sold out uh, SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild, uh, what is it that they would have, presumably, if one were to think that, sold the other two unions out on? Well, the primary thing is this. I mean, the directors, in their deal, they didn't get transparency when it came to um, data metric for streaming services, which all the unions recognize how valuable and important that is, right? So they didn't hold a line on that. And, and look, and they they did they did they were able to get some type of concession with regard to AI technology, and that is the technology will not be considered um, 
a human, um, you can't, using AI will not be considered uh, acceptable uh, with with regard to the DGA contract. So, in, so you can't have an AI system edit you know, uh, edit an episode of of um, Stranger Things, right? So, so there were some accommodations and concessions, but the big picture issues, you know, are just uh, are they weren't willing to stand in in solidarity with the WGA and SAG on the big issues, which is you know transparency with the data metrics, right? Being able to see what the numbers are on the streaming, but also a flat out non um, flat out uh, prohibition against use of AI across the board when it comes to all types of uh, creative services in, with regard to writing and acting. And obviously, you know, directing is, is an different issue. But yeah. Uh, very quickly, we talked to someone uh, when the writers uh, strike uh, first got underway and they said that, you know, from the studio's point of view, uh, if there's no production right now, they're kind of saving money. Uh, if the actors also go on strike, are the studios still saving money, or are they are they running to the end of that road where they're going to be kind of forced to make some kind of deal at some point? Yeah, I think the concept of the studio saving money is a very optimistic way of looking at some of this. Uh, listen, as a reminder, just one union striking in 2008, again, WGA cost the city, cost Los Angeles County $2.5 billion, right? So I, there's no there's no chance that this is going to be a savings in my estimation, whether it just it just remains a WJ issue. And especially if SAG steps in and strikes, this will definitely bring the studios to their knees and they will really have to bargain and make some concessions that they haven't been willing to make. All right. Jay Christopher Hamilton, thank you for joining us. TV, radio and film professor at Syracuse University. Still ahead, the former drummer for Maroon 5 is going to be here to share his story of addiction, recovery, and mental health in the world of rock and roll. And also maybe fill us in on the plots of Maroons 1 through 4. <laughs> You're not going to let go on that. No, I'm not. <laughs> you aren't. All right. Right now, though, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence is running for president now. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is now in two as the Republican field gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Josh Skako is a political analyst and professor at the University of South Florida. Josh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Charles and Rob, for having me on. So this falls into, I presume, Mr. Trump's playbook, does it not? The more people who are running against him in the Republican field, I'm guessing he figures, the better for him because it divides the Republican vote and he ends up victorious as he did the last time when he had, what, 17 opponents. Yeah, so this is looking a lot like 2016 all over again, uh, just a different cast of characters. And the big strategy here, as you noted, for the Trump campaign is to divide that anti-Trump vote. And right now, it's about 40 to 50 percent of the Republican electorate in a primary, uh, depending on the state. So if you can get enough individuals to divide that vote, um, it could mean it could mean big things for Donald Trump in the primary. But the tactic might be the same. But there are some differences this time. We've got some serious charges uh, already filed, more uh, said to be coming, more indictments mm-hmm. coming, some serious trouble, and and a, a few more Republicans willing to uh, take him on directly, including those who had worked with him before. Does that change the uh, the thing a little bit? And maybe this tactic won't be as successful as it was in the last time. 
So one of the key things that we need to remember here is who's the audience. The audience is Republican primary voters who are more conservative than the general Republican um, in a general election and are more likely to like Donald Trump and also to have approved of a lot of his policies during his presidency. So because of that, taking away those individuals that are already committed to Donald Trump is going to be a tall task. And I say that coming from a state like Florida, where we have two presidential candidates and uh, the governor is trying to thread that needle as well here in terms of figuring out how to take some of those loyal Trump voters. So whether or not the investigations can really shake loose, some of that support is yet to be seen. But one of the things we know in terms of the polling, particularly with former Vice President Mike Pence, is it's not necessarily going to work for those loyalists because Donald Trump was able to plant the message post-January 6th that Mike Pence didn't perform whatever duty he was supposed to perform, which we know is incorrect. Uh, nevertheless, that is something that Trump supporters still believe about the former vice president. Let's take a look at the Democratic side for a minute or so. Do you see anything like that shaping up in terms of opponents, potential opponents, to uh, Joe Biden? There are a couple already in the uh, sort of mix, but are they really serious? From At this early stage, it doesn't look like uh, the president's going to face a serious opponent in the Democratic primary. Um, there are the sorts of more low-profile low candidates in the, in the primary so far. And one of the key things that I think is really important is the president's team wants to avoid a high-profile primary challenge. Every single incumbent president that has faced, at least in the past 40-plus years, that has faced a significant primary challenge um, has gone on to have difficulties in the general election. And you can look at Jimmy Carter, you can look at George H.W. Bush as two cross-party examples of that. So the president hopes to get through the primary without significant attacks, particularly from his left flank, uh, as he shifts more towards the center. You hear that with his messages on bipartisanship in the past week with the debt deal. And you're going to hear and continue to hear that as the Republicans are pushing further to the right in order to appeal to their primary voters. You're talking about the tactic of uh, diluting the anti-Trump uh, vote in the Republican primary. Uh, and there are two main streams emerging in, in this field so far. You've got the uh, anti-Trump Republicans who are really anti-anti-Trump. Uh, they criticize Trump. Uh, they think that the party needs to move on from him, that he didn't do a lot of good for the party. And then you've right. got the other anti-Trump who want to out-Trump uh, Trump. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Ron DeSantis, does does Ron DeSantis have a chance of solidifying that that kind of anti-Trump faction? It's it's really too early to tell on that. The reason why is the governor for the initial splash that he's had on the national stage is still in many ways an unknown quantity to Republican primary voters in these smaller states, Iowa, New Hampshire, that are going to want to sit and visit with these candidates multiple times before making a decision. And so while the governor is running on a particular record in Florida, the other key component there is Donald Trump is a known quantity. And you can place that up against Chris Christie. You can place that up even against former Vice President Mike Pence. These are lower profile Republicans. And because of that, Donald Trump enters with an inherent advantage in a primary just because of that visibility and because of the attention that he can command in many of the spaces where he has commanded attention since 2015. Very quickly, because we, we are going to run out of time. We had somebody on yesterday who wrote a very good article, interesting mm -hmm. one anyway, 
suggesting that uh, Biden has a Kamala Harris problem and to get rid of that problem, he needed to do something really dramatic uh, like enlisting uh, Barack Obama to run with him on the ticket because this essay pointed out constitutionally that actually is allowable. Is that laughable or is that a possibility, a real possibility, do you think? It's yeah, it's not a possibility. Uh, and we can think of that in terms of it would actually be more disruptive to the Biden campaign to replace to do something like replace the vice president. That's the other thing that these campaign teams have to take into account is the sort of, yes, there might be sort of public opinion dynamics that favor or oppose uh, the vice president or the president in this regard. But what happens in that circumstance where a big shakeup occurs you can't tell that from public opinion right now. So in that regard, sometimes you stick with the team that has brought you this far and you keep going into the game with that team. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Josh Skanko, political analyst, professor at the University of South Florida. But it was an interesting article the other day. It was a very interesting article. It, it's one of those uh, uh, interesting things to think about in a hypothetical alternate reality. A hypothetical alternate? <laughs> okay. Did you like that? That was <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, wasn't I, it? Yeah. That was pretty cool. And so to come, we are going to talk to the founding drummer for Maroon 5 about the mental health challenges in the music world and how he is helping others avoid hitting rock bottom. Right now, though, the rivalry between the PGA and Live Golf is now over. The two giants are merging just ahead of next week's U.S. Open in L.A. With us now is Rick Horro, sports business analyst and CEO of Horror Sports uh, Ventures. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So this this merger was kind of a surprise to I think some of the PGA loyalists. They they did some of them feel kind of stabbed in the back by this because there was so much bad blood for so long. Well, you know there hasn't been enough time to feel. Uh, you know, there have been seven people who knew about this deal honestly, and they decided to get it done and enter into an agreement to agree to agree to agree. Usually that doesn't happen until some of the details are worked out. The amazing thing about this is that there are a lot more questions than answers. But the biggest question is, can the leagues uh, coexist? Uh, they've answered it uh, in a, with a resounding yes and deals with TV, deals with individual players. The Ryder Cup, does the beginning of the fall season count as the next season for purposes of transition? Uh, what happens to the players who uh, were paid big live money and, and now will be given kind of a pass back to the big tour? Nobody knows what the answers are. At the end of the day, naysayers can talk about the negatives about this, but it's good for golf. It's good for the fans. And I, I can't think of a league merger that uh, we, we've had that it's the biggest story in sports history. The WNBA, excuse me, the NBA and the ABA, which is before your lifetime probably, and the uh, WHA and the NHL all, all merged. But that was a kind of a merging into an existing and established league. This is entirely different. And the consequences are tremendous. Talking about consequences, but not necessarily positive ones, uh, isn't there or is there a political price to be paid for this because of all the Saudi involvement? Well, you know, that, that's been uh, uh, no excuses, but that's been the issue from the uh, live perspective since day one. And, uh, you know, now, now uh, excuse the pun, but it's, uh, you know, funding on steroids because now you have billions of dollars. And when Tim Fincham refers to uh, the player development program and dollars for youth sports and a whole host of other things, the difference now is that it'll be primarily funded by the Saudi billions. 
Uh, does that mean it's not for a worthy purpose? No, it's just we have the same kind of discussions we have before. And, uh, you know, they're back front and center, I guess, again. So some of the PGA people who who really didn't like the idea of, of taking Saudi money, do you, do you expect some of them to pull out? Well, pull out and do what? And it's, I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. Pull out and, uh, you know, there are miniature golf courses around the street. You can go to Top, <laughs> top Golf. There's nowhere you know, to you go. Can go to, yeah, Drive Shack. So I, I don't, you know, look, it's the situation of, of uh, both sides, all sides, acknowledge a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done, you know, including the guys who were bullish on staying with the PGA Tour, not because of the Saudi money issue, but just because of the, the, the loyalty and the legacy and, uh, you know, we don't want to go because the trophies mean a lot more to us than the money. Well, now what is the alternative to repay that loyalty? That will pass as well because business is business. And, and now there, as we said, a lot more questions and answers. I'm kind of uh, tired is interesting. I, I, it's recreational listening when people in the media right now are at a disadvantage like everybody else because uh, only five people or seven people knew about this. So uh, I, I've heard uh, the, the line of the day, by the way, guys, and I'm sure you're going to use it for the next seven hours, is there are many more questions than answers. So if I hear that one more time, I'm going to take a small gun and just, uh, you know, aim it at myself. So, so when we come back, there are going to be many more questions than answers. Here it comes. Yes, sir. Here it comes. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, Rick Horo, sports business analyst and uh, CEO of Horo Sports Ventures. So, Charles, more questions than answers at this point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yes. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. You have certainly heard of the band Maroon 5, uh, a huge band, or at least you've heard of uh, lead singer Adam Levine, who was on the TV show The Voice for years. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Levine didn't start the band all by himself. Ryan Dusick was one of the founding members and its drummer. He left the band and fell on some rough times, which we'll talk about before battling back. And he talks about his journey and what he's doing now to help people in a new book. It's called Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on, guys. So uh, let me start, uh, not quite at the beginning, but almost at the beginning, at least the beginning of your journey that brings you here and brings us to the book and all that. You were a founding member, as we said, uh, along with Adam Levine of Maroon 5. Well, there was a preceding band, right? right? What was it called? It was... Well, it was Cars Flowers before. Okay, and then why was it called that again? Uh, well, we started the band one night when we went to uh, find our friend Cara's house. Right. Uh, it was her birthday the next morning, and Adam had the crazy idea to deliver flowers to her house <laughs> as the sun was coming up. It worked out that way after a whole night of trying to find her house in the Hollywood Hills. And so you named the first band after her. Yeah, Cars Flowers made sense at that moment in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you get, I'm going to speed ahead a bit. So you get to, uh, uh, it transforms at some point to Maroon 5, of which you're the founding drummer. Uh, why did you end up leaving the band? Because that really begins a whole different journey for you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really a heartbreaking time for everyone involved because I, I had a breakdown over the course of a few years on tour in support of the album Songs About Jane. Um, and this was something that at the time manifested as physical breakdown. You know, I just lost the ability to play the drums. And so the band had to make the unfortunate des decision to move on without me. Uh, nobody wanted to see that happen. You know, we were brothers. We had built the band for a decade from my parents' garage to the biggest stages in the world. 
Uh, and for me in particular, obviously, it was devastating. I mean, I, it was a loss of my identity. Everything that was my self-definition was wrapped up in being, you know, a member of that band. So I really fell into a really, uh, you know, a, a deep depression. Um, I was self-medicating with alcohol uh, and my anxiety, which had been there before, and I recognize now was a factor in my breakdown as much as the physical aspect was. It was the, uh, you know, the pressure I put on myself, the perfectionism, some of the things that I hadn't dealt with that led to this sort of mind-body breakdown that led to my having to leave the band. You know, I, uh, you touched on this briefly, and I, I, I can barely imagine what it would be like to lose the ability to do something that you do. Uh, that, as you say, defines you. Uh, you play the drums. Suddenly you can't play the drums anymore. And that has got to do a number on a person who is not suffering from anxiety issues. But if you've already got anxiety issues, I mean, how do you survive that? Well, it was tough. I, I think I went through, you know, this. I went through all the stages of grief. You know, I, I was in denial for a while. I was just kind of put on an alter ego and pretended I was still this rock star having a great time. And that's where the alcoholism kind of crept up on me. Um, but really, I think my self-confidence and my self-esteem was getting lower and lower as I was doing that because, yeah, I mean, that self-definition was gone, that, that uh, identity and that purpose, you know, the sort of meaning of my life was gone. What was it, though, about the industry, uh, the rock industry, that made you so anxious? It was something you always wanted to do, right? And, and we were talking during the break that in, in some ways it came easier than you thought it was going to, right, getting into the business. Mm -hmm. What was it that made you so anxious to the point that it had this really profound physical impact on you? Well, I was a high-achieving kid. I'd always put a lot of pressure on myself to do well in the things that I did, and there was that perfectionism and sort of obsessive compulsiveness about everything that I did. Um, I took everything very seriously, and I think it was the intersection of that internal pressure that I put on myself with now the external pressure that came with having a record on the charts and having to perform every night in front of thousands of people. And it was kind of the never-ending tour. It would be one thing if you did that once a month for a year and then it ended, but it was two years and then three years of constant touring. Uh, and, you know, just the physical uh, getting worn down with the jet lag and um, all of it was the intersection of a lot of different things that led to really just my constitution um, feeling like it just couldn't, you know, keep up with this anymore. Uh, we, we do want to talk about some of the things you've been doing to help people outside of Maroon 5 of finding that identity for yourself in other places. But before we take this quick break here, uh, I have to get this question off my chest. Uh, what happened in Maroons 1 through 4? <laughs> They're still out there. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was what was the thinking behind the name uh, Maroon 5? Oh, man, that's the one question. Yeah, I, I know. you got to get it every time. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. We went through every name you could think of in the world, and they were all either taken uh, or, you know, somebody in the band was not happy with it. So it was, it's harder to rename a band than you would think. During the, the break, I was asking you uh, about drumming because you had mentioned uh, before that you left Maroon 5 because the anxiety of being in the business had a physical impact on your ability to, to drum. And I was uh, interested to find out if you can drum now. And, and I'm, I think our listeners would be interested in your answer in that. Yeah, well, it's, it's complicated. Uh, you know, it's kind of strange because I'm doing really well in, in most aspects of my life as a, a therapist and an advocate. And I have this book, Harder to Breathe. So I'm an author. Uh, the drums is still a complicated relationship for me and something that I'm working through to this day because that's where my trauma is. Right. So but what physically happens if you have a drum set in front of you? 
what happens? Yeah, so when I sit at the drums, my nervous system basically tells me this is a threat, right? So I start my, my heart rate starts raising, my hands start getting a little shaky. It's like I'm getting ready to bolt out of there, right? So try coordinating something that takes fine and uh, you know motor skills like that to play the drums. Coordinate that when you're in that state. It's not so easy. So uh, after. Uh Leaving Maroon 5, you started a, a new chapter of your life, uh, doing something quite different than than being in a band. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. You mentioned therapy. Yeah, well, it took me a while to find sort of closure on that chapter of my life. It took about a decade of me trying to avoid it in every way I could with alcohol or otherwise until I finally started recovery and started this whole new chapter of my life which has been so fulfilling. I mean, early on, I I found a new passion for mental health and psychology and purpose in in being of service to others that needed needed help. Uh, So I went back to school. I got a master's degree in clinical psychology to become a therapist. Um, And in the course of that, I realized I had a story to tell that could offer some hope to people that were still struggling or could see themselves in my struggles. Um, and so I wrote this book, Harder to Breathe, and I put it out and created this whole new mission for myself of being an advocate and a speaker, talking about my story, telling my story and the things that I struggled with. But also, you know, it's informed by the things that I've learned as a mental health professional. What is it about your own story that you think helps somebody else's issues? Well, you have to remember, you know, 20 years ago, the public discourse on mental health uh, was not what it is today. Not that we're <laughs> quite there yet. Yeah. Uh, we're starting just starting to destigmatize this conversation. And I think it would have been really helpful for me when I was going through all of those things um, to have a dialogue, to be able to not feel like I was alone, for one, uh, to have a voice, to be able to talk about the things that I was uh, struggling with. And maybe, you know, find some tools to work through it in a way that I wasn't putting so much stress on myself on top of the stress that we were already under on a daily and weekly and monthly basis that led to this breakdown. You talked about the the, the feeling, uh, the reaction that you have even today when you sit down behind a drum set. Uh, when someone sits in front of you and you are going to help them, you, use your knowledge to help them, uh, provide some therapy for them. Uh, what how how different is that feeling from the feeling you still experience when you sit down at a drum set? That was very different. You know, that's the arena in which I feel most comfortable now because I feel like I've I've lived a life in which I've earned the position of, you know, sitting in, in, in a space in which I'm offering what I've learned. Um, you know, it's it's not just the degree on the wall that gives me that that position in life. It's having lived through all the things that I have. I bring my own experience into what I do as much as I do my education. So I just I know when I'm when I'm working with someone, whether it's one on one or I'm talking to a group, that um, I know what I'm talking about because I've lived it. Right. <laughs> but do I, I'm interested when when people come to you for a one on one session, and if they know anything about your past, do you have to kind of get over the the hump that they may be either thinking or they may say, yeah, but, you know, you're you come from a different world than I do. You know, you came from a show business world. You had uh, a, a good amount of fame and presumably money, too. Uh, and can you get past that so that you can relate one on one to that person on a on a human level and get rid of the showbiz part in the past? Yeah, absolutely. And I work with people from all different walks of life and half of them don't even know anything about me or my background when we when we meet. A lot of times it comes out at some point, they end up Googling me or something and <laughs> they figure it out. And it really hasn't been a detriment. If anything, um, it, it's I guess it's it's helpful to recognize that somebody, even somebody that's in the position of being in the limelight or having a lot of success still struggles with a lot of things that everyone else does in any walk of life in any industry.
Uh, you and Adam Levine were were close friends, and that that's how the band got started originally. Do you still keep in touch with him? And and how does he feel about this uh, new part of your life? Yeah, Adam and I, you know, we're we're like brothers. We don't see each other at this point as much as I would like to, uh, but we talk, and you know, we we te- we have the late night text sessions, which are just goofy and silly the way we were when we were teenagers. So I really love and I appreciate that friendship. He's happy for me. We you know we check in every now and then, and he's got a great life and a great family. So I'm really happy for him, and he was very supportive of this book and everything that I'm doing. Um, he actually wrote the foreword to, Har- to Harder to Breathe, my book. So uh, I was really grateful for that. And, um, you know, it's great to have a relationship like that at this point. Do you ever see yourself dipping back into the world of showbiz? Well, you know, in some ways, yeah, to answer that question, I do. You know, I've been kind of brainstorming the ways in which I can use my platform to reach people and and offer a message of hope. And, you know, putting this book out there um, is one way to do it. I don't know what else it would lead to. You know, I'm getting onto shows like this and thinking about maybe someday I'll have my own show. You know, (laughs) who knows? (laughs) All right. uh, Ryan Dusick, the uh, original founding drummer for Maroon 5, I think part of our copy said for... uh, uh, original drummer, yeah, and but, uh, Charles was joking like that makes it sound like there's a fake drummer, right? Yeah, yeah. no, it's uh, founding, founding. Uh, the extra crispy drummer, uh, <laughs> but uh, the uh, founding member of uh, Maroon Five. The new book is called "Harder to Breathe: A Memoir of Making Maroon Five, Losing It All, and Finding Recovery." Thank you so much Ryan, for uh, being in the studio. Pleasure with having us. you with us. Thank you guys so much, and good luck. Thank you. That's it for uh, KNX in Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow.